They who can give up essential liberty to obtain a little temporary safety deserve neither liberty nor safety. There are a lot of components that go into the American Revolution. It is really far more complicated than it is often made out to be, at least in the aspects of uh, what the Founding Fathers actually wanted and how they came up with the ideas. And today, we will be delving into that murky mess that brought about one of the greatest nations to ever exist. But first, let me make a mention of the show's sponsor today. Wondrium is an amazing platform. Any sort of curiosity can be satisfied by their hundreds of online lectures or documentaries. If you want to know how to write great fiction, learn about the fall of the Roman Empire, or how to win every chess match you'll ever play, Wondrium can offer a great set of courses on all of those very things. I have had a One Dream membership for a while now, and I can personally highly recommend it. So go start your free trial today and use the link below. That out of the way, let's start the show. Welcome, I should say this, welcome everybody to the Food for Thought podcast. If this is your first time listening, this is a show about all sorts of different things. Today, we are of course talking about the American Revolution and the early setting up of the Constitution of the United States of America. So welcome, folks, and I am thrilled to bring to you another episode. We are fast encroaching upon uh, episode number 50 um, in just two weeks, I believe, yep, uh, yeah, in just two weeks now, we have uh, the one-year anniversary of the show in which I'll be doing an episode with my father and my Uncle Randy on the Inklings. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that one. That'll be very exciting. Uh, I can't think of no better way of celebrating one year of this podcast than doing a podcast with two absolute heroes of my life. Um, these are two of the, probably the two wisest men that I that I am uh, blessed to know, and I have an opportunity to talk to both of them about something that is more serious than people think, um, and we'll talk about that on that episode. So go ahead and listen to that episode when it comes out. But for today, let's get into um, the topic. Early American history is a fascinating thing to me. Uh, the time period is just ripe with amazing tales and inhabited by just the most incredible of characters. Yet this is also a period that is often misunderstood or intentionally misinterpreted uh, to certain degrees. Uh, you see, when the unhappiness started, the Founding Fathers did not actually want to start a revolution and make a new nation. Now, originally, they simply wanted the rights to be an Englishman. They wanted to be treated equally as English citizens should be, should be treated based on their quasi-constitution and parliamentary system. Originally, they just wanted to be afforded those same privileges. And they started and began retaliation with that in mind. The cry of no taxation without representation was about representation in the British Parliament. You see, George Washington, when we're looking at famous historical characters, George Washington, of course, was a, a captain, a lieutenant. He worked his way up the British military or the colonial side 
of the British military. And one of the things that really brought down his ire upon the British was the fact that he was very often kind of outmaneuvered and undermined by people who were of a lower rank than him, but were part of the royal uh, British Navy or the royal British military, not the colonial side of it. So even though he was a captain, he would be undermined or overruled by those that were simply lieutenants, which is a lower uh, rank than a captain. And that is one of the things that uh, really was uh, irksome to most of the Founding Fathers, because almost all of the Founding Fathers uh, that we think of today were um, men of high esteem in the British system, and they were very upset by the fact that they were not honored in the same ways that the British were, that actual Englishmen were, and they thought that they deserved to also be treated in that same way. So all of the early retaliation that is sought out against um, the British parliamentary system and King George um, was because they felt that they should be considered equal and represented equally in the British parliamentary system. Now, um, there are other circumstances as well. Of course, uh, they had just come off the victory of the Seven Years' War, or also the uh, it's also called the French and Indian War, um, and they were very proud of this victory. And the British at this point wasn't really a monarchy anymore. I mean, they obviously had a monarch, but he was not a totalitarian king as he would have been a couple hundred or even a couple decades ago, well, more than decades, about a century and a half ago. Um, and this was uh, because of John Locke's ideas in the Glorious Revolution that led to that British parliamentary system. And this leads us where we need to go even farther back before we can cover the other colonial circumstances, back to the age of the Enlightenment, which is roughly the 16th and 17th centuries, or you could even argue that it goes up to the 18th centuries as well. The origin of the Enlightenment era can be traced back to Copernicus's publication of his Heavenly Bodies essay, where he says that, no, in fact, the Earth is not the center of the uh, solar system, but in fact, it is actually the sun, and we are rotating around the sun. And despite these misconceptions, uh, the Enlightenment era was really not an era of anti-religion and anti-God. Um, Really, most of the Enlightenment thinkers were themselves devout Christians and were using these new resources that were available to humans to actually prove the existence of God and prove uh, through these rationalist theories that uh, Christianity actually can be held firm, but it's not because of the reason that because they said so. It's not because of an appeal to an authority. It's because nature actually testifies to these things which is something that is another aspect of it that is very often mishandled um, by the scientists of today's time. They want to argue that, oh, these are skeptics and rationalists, and they're rationalizing against the church. And yes, that's true, they rationalized against the church, but they rationalized against the church because of the tendency that the church had to simply say, it's because we said so that this is the way that it is. When really they're saying, no, um, 
we can actually prove these things in the scientific method. And the church at this time didn't like that because it was coming from an authority outside of themselves, which is, in fact, actually a problem with the church. And it's one of the reasons that a lot of people were turned off by the Catholic Church and still are because of its aggressive uh, death grip on truth that... Um, even though they are correct in what is the truth, uh, it it's, can't be a situation of the ends justifies the means. You have to actually allow people to come to that decision of the truth. And that is what the Enlightenment was all about. That's why many of the Enlightenment thinkers were on the bad side of the church. And interestingly enough, um, one of the iterations of the Illuminati actually comes around this time because uh, Illuminati is Italian for essentially enlightenment or illumination. Um, and so one of the original ideas of the Illuminati was kind of undermining the church's power and they would write in English because the church disdained uh, that heathen language, the modern language. They only liked uh, Latin. Um, and so the Illuminati was actually... Uh, a response to that, and originally it would have been thinkers like Isaac Newton, Galileo Galley, uh, who would go underground to discuss these ideas and and um, publish their ideas and spread these manuscripts under the church's nose, which is why that's where the conspiracy theories around it happens. But a lot of, uh, this is an interesting side note there. Regardless, um, they sought to banish skepticism through two primary ways, because a lot of what the a byproduct of what the church was doing at the time um, was creating the skepticism around how we know things, like because it was all just an appeal to authority. There's so they just declared that certain things are off limits uh, uh, talking about, such as the movement of the solar bodies, um, because of this appeal to authority. And so the use of reason and no longer just taking things on authority, and. Um, the beauty and the truth of nature through hard sciences is what they wanted to do. They wanted to use reason, and they wanted to show the beauty and the truth of nature. Those are the two things that they wanted, and those through hard sciences. And we can look at three of the most important figures, Newton, Locke, and Montesquieu, and we can look at Isaac Newton used reason, and he, to examine nature, he used this hard sciences that came about at that time to use and discover more about nature and physics. If we look at John Locke, who will be important uh, later on, he used nature uh, and um, the reality of nature through the use of reason hard sciences to look at the human mind and the nature of the human mind, the, the reality of how humans think. Um, and then, of course, the systems of government and how nature testifies to the creation of governments through um, the use, once again, of reason and hard sciences. Uh, the Baron Montesquieu came up with many ideas of uh, what our nation would be founded upon, those governmental ideas, um, primarily more through Loxian ideas, but also Montesquieu had a lot to add on to that. So to kind of boil that down, what I just said there was... The Enlightenment was about revealing nature and the realities of nature, whether it be human nature, uh, governmental frameworks, or actual nature and physics. They wanted to reveal those things, the things that are really actually tangible and exist, through the use of logical deduction and hard science reasoning. That is what the Enlightenment was about. It was not a retaliation against the church and against these Christian ideals. It was a retaliation on the 
um, banishment of any other forms of discovering those things. Because the Bible and the church was right about a lot of them. And a lot of these thinkers testified to the validity of Christianity. Isaac Newton was a very devout Christian. So was Galileo Galilei. Uh, John Locke, after he retired, um, he also wrote a book about the validity of Christianity. So all of these thinkers were Christians. And even Descartes, who I'm not the hugest fan of, he's the I think, therefore I am, I think there's some problems with that concept. But even he used this skepticism of everything to rationalize backwards to a position of belief in Christianity. So it was not an anti-Christian movement. It was, in fact, a pro-Christian movement. And it was so pro-Christian that they brought out of the equation the appeal to authority of the church and said, no, even nature will testify towards this. And that is the Enlightenment. And out of the Enlightenment uh, came two systems of government, um, one that John Locke had, and the other that I've talked about at length before, in fact, it got its own episode, the Hobbesian Leviathan government. John Locke is who we're going to focus on in this next little portion here and his ideas, a little bit about him. Um, he was targeted by his government for his political notions. He was actually exiled during uh, this Rye House plot that happened where King Charles II uh, had an assassination attempt on his life and his brother's life. And because of that, even though Locke is generally accepted to have not actually participated in that, um, he was exiled. And then um, these sentiments that he kind of sparked with his political notions, natural rights, the social contract, and life, liberty, and property, all of those things belong to man, and the government is actually an institute created by the people for the people. Uh, all of those ideas uh, led to the Glorious Revolution, is what it was called, quote-unquote, Glorious Revolution, and which led to the British parliamentary system. Thomas Hobbes in, is in many ways uh, antithetical to Locke's ideas, believing that the state should be a form of leviathan to protect men from their own foolishness. And I've talked about him, I said, in his own episode. Uh, if you want to listen to that, it was called, I believe, Philosophy, the State of Leviathan. You can go listen to that, why that's a horrible idea. Uh, and I'll also give credit where credit is due. I got the spur for that episode from a fantastic book that I cannot recommend highly enough. Um, Dr. Benjamin Weicker's book, 10 Books That Screwed Up the World and Five Million Help, which I actually have here sitting on my desk right behind me because I'm still flipping through it and going back and rereading certain segments. A great book. Can't recommend it highly enough. Unfortunately, um, I tried to get him on the podcast, but he is retired uh, and he's no longer doing any public things. He's living on his farm, which is perfect. What an American thing to do. Anyways, so we know what ideas were influential of that day. And so now we can go back to the future and to the past relative to us. What is time after all? Um, to the 18th century in the time of the colonies. So at this time, the parliament uh, would in many ways ruin the colonists' view of being free Englishmen because of many taxations and things that they did um, and acts that they would pass. So right before this, of course, we have what I said, the Seven Years' War. And the Seven Years' War led to many debts and taxations that needed to be levied in order to pay for it. It was a seven-year-long war, and it was very, very expensive. 
But what the parliament did really upset the colonists in many ways. And you can think of this in an unjustified stance. Like, oh, the, the colonists did not really need, they, they shouldn't have levied the taxes on there. Um, or they should have been okay with the taxes levied on them, is what I meant to say. Um, but if you really think about it, if the English... Uh, and the British Parliament wouldn't give credit where credit is due in the colonies, why should the colonies have to pay for them? All of the higher-ranked generals, uh, captains, colonels, all of those are undermined by lower-ranking British men. The British should have to pay for it if they're not even going to give credit to them. And moreover, they stripped uh, land from the colonists with their Appalachian Mountains uh, proclamation line. So... They had won these spoils of war because that is a real thing, despite what many people today would like to say, that the spoils of war should not exist and it should just be given back. They won these land segments in a real official war, yet they were stripped of those spoils. And the the colonists taught this or took this as um, a kind of a loss for them because they fought hard dedicating blood, sweat, tears, and often lives to this British nation that really didn't care about them a whole much, like out of sight, out of mind. They weren't giving them the same rights as other Englishmen. And as I, I reiterated, reiterated the point many times now that uh, higher-level military officers were constantly undermined by lower-level royal British officers. And so now they win this war, they take this great victory, they won these phenomenal uh, swaths of land, and then they were denied those spoils. And then Parliament passed the Stamp Act of 1765, as well as enforcements of navigation and requirements to pay the soldiers to enforce the proclamation line. So not only are they said you cannot go here, but you are also going to have to pay for the soldiers that are going to say you can't take your own land, that you won in war. And many of the colonists believe that the methods by which these were enforced were extremely, uh, what we would say today, unconstitutional. But they thought it was a violation of their British rights because they would, if any thought of encroachment upon those laws or violation of those laws was to occur, they would um, execute searches in people's houses without warrants to do so, which was against the uh, code of the day, as well as they would get, uh, they would be tried without juries, which was a concept created by the British parliamentary system. You get tried by a jury of your peers. Eventually, due to a great decrying from the um, Englishmen, colonists, um, that tax was repealed, uh, the Stamp Act, and uh, some of the Navigation Acts, and those were repealed, but then it was just quickly replaced by the Townsend Act of 1767. And by now, the colonists were angry yet again, and this led to the boycotting of many of the products that um, were coming from British territories. So they boycotted them, and then this protestation uh, bled over even into mob violence and protests, leading to the Boston Massacre which was, of course, extremely propagandized. I believe, I don't know if it was Benjamin Franklin, but it might have been Benjamin Franklin. I do know that the famous Joiner Die Snake was one of the first political cartoons created by Benjamin Franklin. I don't know if this was, though, because I know he owned his own printing store and all that. But um, 
really they they the founding fathers or the people who would become founding fathers would uh, take advantage of that and massively exaggerate the story when really a lot of these uh, American scrappers would take uh, snowballs and shove rocks in the snowballs and were throwing rock-strewn snowballs um, and even ice bricks at these British soldiers or lobster backs, as they were called, which led them to fire upon them because they were being attacked with relatively dangerous weapons. This led to the Tea Act, um, which was essentially a tax on tea that would help the bankrupt East India Company um, afford to ship them um, tea because, like I said, they were bankrupt. Uh, and it was really just a one-penny tax, but back in the day, that was still pretty expensive. And now these, at this point, quasi-Americans were very unhappy about this and threw a big party which involved lots and lots of tea, which I talked about before, which led to... Um, the consumption and higher rates of coffee, which I am drinking right now. And the kind of coffee I'm drinking is just the most delicious. You know, this guy sells it on his website, the Food for Thought podcast website, um, and it's called the Philosophical Bean. And I'll tell you, it is just the most delicious coffee that I've ever had. Uh, this guy does a fantastic job. He roasts it in his own backyard with his own coffee roaster, and he buys them from an ethically sourced farm in Indonesia, and it's just the smoothest yet earthy-toned coffee that you'd ever taste. And it's something that real Americans drink because it's made by a real American, so I recommend you buy the Philosophical Bean Coffee today and be a real American, don't be a lobster back. All right, so now... Uh, these quasi-Americans at this point are very unhappy with all of the sanctions that are being placed upon them, the taxes that are being placed upon them. They're now being forced to quarter soldiers, and in response, it's really just a response to a response to a response to a response that kind of leads up to the Revolutionary War. In response to the Boston Tea Party, um, Parliament uh, returned fire with greater taxations and other acts as well, closing down the Boston port. So now businesses are going to be going out because anybody who lives in Boston can no longer um, transport their goods or sell their goods because the Boston port was shut down. And now they are sending in more soldiers to be quartered. So now they're forcing Americans to take in British soldiers who are enforcing the laws that are in the taxes that are oppressing them. And this led, in 1774, to the First Continental Congress. John Adams and John Hancock were partially responsible for this, and I believe it was John Hancock that really was running the First Continental Congress, although don't quote me on that part. Um, but these two people were ordered to be arrested um, because uh, parliamentarians saw this as an act of treason, and they couldn't really hold this Continental Congress without uh, the king and the parliament say so. They did not say so, and they ordered that they be arrested, and moreover, the guns and ammunition that this Continental Congress had been accumulating to be seized. So they were disarming them. Tensions mounted as London even sent mercenaries, the Haitian uh, mercenaries, into the U.S. Uh, to come for the weapons. Leading to April 18, 1775, when Paul Revere went to the Old North Church steeple. And the next day, the Battle of Lexington and Concord took place. And of course, April 18th, that night is, of course, the one if by land, two if by sea. The famous Paul Revere poem, his ride saying, the British are coming, the British are coming, which he probably didn't actually shout. I don't really know. That's probably an exaggeration. 
Um, but of course, the shot heard around the world the next day, the battles of Lexington and Concord. Now, of course, it's important to note that there were really four categories of people. There was the loyalists, the people who um, were not in favor of leaving the, at this point, I should say, and the con- the first and second Continental Congresses were run by the moderates, but there were, of course, the loyalists, the people who were in favor of the king. There were the, the neutrals, those who really didn't care, the moderates, who was, at this point, most of the founding fathers, in all likelihood. We know John Hancock and James Madison, or not James Madison, John Adams, would have been more moderates, because, at this point, the First and Second, uh, first and second Continental Congresses were run by the moderates. At this point, it is the Second Continental Congress that has taken place. And um, they were holding the majority, and so it took some time. But in July of 1776, specifically July 4th, independence was declared. So the first battle really took place April 19th of 1775. So there was a full year of these battles and skirmishes that was leading up to the next year in July um, where independence was declared. That September, there's a very interesting historical figure, Nathan Hale. He was executed in New York. Now, for those that don't know who Nathan Hale is, he's essentially one of the first real spies that existed in America. And spies wasn't a huge thing because this is an era of gentlemanliness. So spies are very frowned upon, as they still are now. Um... He was a spy who was sent by George Washington when George Washington asked if anybody would be willing. He was a commissioned captain by George Washington, and he was sent to go spy on the British to figure out some of their plans. And so he impersonated a teacher uh, and, um, and went to go spy, was figuring out some of their plans, their maps, their strategies. Um, and some accounts say, we don't really know who turned him in, some accounts say that his, uh, his cousin, Samuel, um, Samuel Hale, uh, betrayed him, invited him to a dinner while he had informed the British military. Uh, obviously, his brother was a loyalist, or his, not his brother, his cousin was a loyalist, and he showed up to a dinner and then was arrested and tried and executed in New York in 1776. That's September. December comes around and brought one of the most famous instances, uh, famous parts and events of the war, the crossing of the Delaware on Christmas morning. Uh, This was seen at the time and probably was the only way in which they could defeat the uh, Hessian mercenaries. A lot of people think that they were going to battle the British, but really uh, that morning they were going to fight the mercenaries that the British had paid for and sent into America. And so that happened in 1776. October of the next year, 1777, brought uh, France fully into the war as the General Bourouin surrendered. In June of 1778, the French Navy managed to intimidate the British into um, abandoning Philadelphia. And now I'm going to read a little bit of a, um, a biography that I took from the National Park Service about a very interesting character named Francis Marion, or the Swamp Fox. He was born at his family's plantation in Berkeley County, South Carolina, in 1732. 
a planter, Marion built his home in Pond Bluff in 1773 in the area of the Utah Springs, and that is E-U-T-A-W, not Utah, U-T-A-H, uh, Utah Springs, a site now beneath the uh, waters of Lake Marion. His first military service, similar to another uh, famous local character, Thomas Sumter, uh, came in the Cherokee War of 1759-1761, uh, part of the larger French and Indian War. His experience in the frontier warfare style against the Cherokees likely influenced his partisan warfare tactics against the British loyalists from 1780-82 in South Carolina. In 1775, Marion was a member of the South Carolina Provincial Congress. One, uh, on June 21st, he was commissioned as a captain in the 2nd South Carolina Regiment under Colonel William Moultrie. He was uh, present at the very, very famous Battle of Sullivan's Island in June 28th of 1776, when approximately 400 South Carolinians successfully repulsed the Royal Navy fleet attacking Charleston Harbor. After the victory, he was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel in the Continental Army. Marion commanded the 2nd South Carolina Regiment at the disastrous Franco-American Siege of Savannah in autumn of 1779. Fortunately for the Patriot cause, Marion was recovering at his estate from an injury incurred from jumping out of a second-story window to leave a party in which the series of toasts had led to the uh, distasteful drunkenness. When Charleston fell to the British in uh, 1780, escaping to North Carolina, he and a small party joined General Horatio Gates's army, but was not present with the force at the defeat of Camden in August. Marion challenged British rule in South Carolina low country uh, after these two military disasters and targeted British lines of communication and supply. His tactics frustrated British efforts to mobilize loyalists in the Georgetown district between August and December of 1780. Marion gained national recognition for his actions at the Great Savannah Black Mingo Tearcoat Swamp and Georgetown. British Lieutenant Colonel Benastri Tarleston, sent to find and neutralize Marion and his men, despaired given the difficulty of the mission, stating, quote, As for this old fox, the devil himself could not catch him. Marion, unlike Thomas Sumter, coordinated very effectively in the field with the Continental Army, led by Major General Nathaniel Green. Together with the Light Horse Company, Harry Lee's Legion, Marion captured, um, Harry Lee's Legion, Marion captured Fort Watson and the Santee River in April 1781, and then Fort Mott in May. Forcing the British to evacuate Camden, Marion commanded South Carolina's military uh, militia in advanced lines along with Brigadier General Andrew Pickens. At the Battle of Utah Springs in September 1781, the last major battle in the Carolinas, in which the British suffered so many casualties, they ceased further inland campaigning. Following victory over the British, Marion returned to his plantation and pursued a career in politics. He served several terms in the South Carolina State Senate and also received the honorary position of commander of Fort Johnson in 1784, for which he received a stipend of $500 annually. He died in his estate in 1795, and so on and so forth. Now, if you are an acute observer and a movie fan, you might recognize um, where that came from. Um, that whole story, you might recognize it in some little bits. That is actually the real story of Benjamin Martin, the character in The Patriot. In reality, uh, his story is actually combined. Uh, this guy, uh, Francis Marion, the Fox Swamp, 
or the Swamp Fox, I'm sorry, um, is combined with Thomas Sumter to create the story of Benjamin Martin. Um, so that is really the, the true events that transpired uh, in the movie The Patriot, and um, which is an extremely interesting story. I love the movie The Patriot. It's, I think, of the two stories of Mel Gibson fighting against the British, I prefer uh, the one that takes place in America, The Patriot, as opposed to the one that takes place in Scotland, uh, the story of Braveheart, because in truth, those are the exact same movie, just one is Scottish and one is American and America. So, <laughs> um, fascinating story. I just wanted to read that because uh, I thought it was interesting because I didn't really realize that the Patriot actually was a real person. Um, really, is a combination of a couple people, but primarily it is the Swamp Fox. That's why in the movie he's called like the ghost or uh, so on and so forth. So now, after the victory over the British, the Constitution was not created. Instead, it was the Articles of Confederation, which proved to be less than effective. Each state saw themselves as uh, miniature nations and wanted the smallest federal government possible uh, because, of course, of you know, bad experiences with larger central governments that are authoritarian. And so they really saw themselves as um, united states. They're united through this contract that they have with a greater whole but they wanted to focus primarily on the states. That's why it's the United States. In the beginning, uh, right after uh, freedom was declared in 1776, uh, the Second Continental Congress was the central government system. When they said, we are now independent nations, it was the Second Continental Congress that was the first central government system. The articles were proposed in 1777, and, but not ratified until 1781. And under the Articles of Confederation, there was no executive or judicial branch at all, just the Congress. Um, and no changes could be made to that document without a unanimous vote by all of the states. No measures could really be taken by the Congress unless two-thirds of the Congress came into accordance with the idea. So they could not declare war. They could not. Uh, they had no taxation power whatsoever. They could only ask for donations. But no military action could be taken. No interstate commerce could uh, be mitigated or controlled by the government without uh, a two-thirds vote. Each state was, of course, terrified of centralized power, and justifiably so. Um, as well, some successes, uh, some successes did take place under that government, though, uh, such as the Northwest Ordinances, so the creation of Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana, um, and I'm missing one other one. There's a couple of ordinance, uh, a couple of Northwest. Uh, states that were created, and another huge victory for the Articles of Confederation is in those Northwest Territories, slavery was banned. So even so beginning, the very beginning and the, the consecration of the United States of America under the Articles of Confederation, slavery was seen as a bad thing. And it's unfortunate that it continued after that because there was really some great progress that took place um, in this very early republic. So yes, yeah, slavery was completely banned in the states of Ohio, Michigan, Illinois, Indiana, and I'm missing one, I don't remember. Um, but slavery was outlawed. Despite a few minor victories under the Articles of Confederation, it simply wasn't working. There were massive problems that occurred, both in the nation and outside of the nation. 
they they were of course in tremendous debt to the French because of um, their assistance in the war. You all know uh, they were also at the time fighting the Forgotten War as they were being pirated massively um, by the um, Ottoman Empire of the era, the, the pirates from um, those Ottoman nations. Of course, inside the nation, they were having problems with the Shays' Rebellion as well and uh, no ability to muster a national army, no ability to levy taxes to pay for an army, no way to set up those institutions that they needed. Um, I don't know if this is exactly accurate, but um, there was time in which the national military had no more than a 100 soldiers. Um, so they were completely reliant on the goodwill of state militias, which weren't very well trained at the time. So then in 1787 brought the Constitutional Convention, which originally was simply going to revamp the Articles of Confederation. Yet they quickly realized that this would not be possible, bringing around the proposition of a constitution. And I want to read the difference because it has come to my attention that... Um, Around 40% of our nation doesn't really know the difference between the Declaration of Independence and the Articles are, and um, the Constitution. They don't know which one is which. So I'm going to read the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, and then I will read the preamble of the Constitution. And I have here a beautiful little book with all of the biggest components of um, our American declarations, our American speeches, uh, documentations, but this is the beginning of the Declaration of Independence. When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which had connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God, entitle them a decent respect to the opinions of mankind, requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness." that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly, all experience hath shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer which evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. And I'll stop it there. That is the Declaration of Independence, and I have to find, I forgot which number, uh, which page the Constitution is on, but we can see in that um, how uh, 
informed that was by John Locke's ideas. And so we're going to flip to page 80 and I'll read part of the preamble and we'll see the difference here in the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. But the Declaration of Independence is, of course, a beautifully written document by Thomas Jefferson. And I just love the wordage there that he used. And I don't think wordage is a real word, but it is now. Um, that was the Declaration of Independence. And after that part that I read, it goes on a little bit more saying that, listen, this is what governments are for. We're declaring independence because at some point it becomes necessary that we no longer suffer these uh, inflictions that you've caused. And after that, he lists like 20, 25, possibly even 30 um grievances that the Americans have at the unjust inflictions that the British Parliament was inflicting upon them. The no taxation without representation, the quartering of soldiers, they're not being uh, treated as fairly, they're paying too much taxes for the rights that they're gaining. Those, anyways, so really the Declaration of Independence is that... Um, reason that this is what the government's for, this is what you, the British government, are doing, this is why it's become necessary for us to dissolve you, because we do not have a right, or we don't have the necessity to suffer your inflictions upon us, therefore, it's time that we as men do what is required of us for ourselves and for our posterity, as we'll see in the Constitution of America, um, that... We are going to start our own thing, and here, in case you really want to know, these are the other grievances that we have towards you. This is the preamble to the Constitution. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and to our posterity, our children, do ordain and establish this Constitution of the United States of America. And then we have the Articles, um, which essentially sets up the functionality of the government. And then uh, we see that after these are written, only 59, or 39, I'm sorry, of the 55 delegates actually signed the Constitution, leading to the battle that took place afterwards. So in 1787, the Constitutional Convention took place, um, which was, as I said, just originally going to rework the Articles of Confederation. But those that came quickly realized that this would not be possible. The Articles of Confederation were beyond redemption because of just the framework that they had. Instead, they reflected back upon the great Enlightenment thinkers and came up with a new government that had really never been seen before, an actual written constitutional um, form of government, a representative democracy with concepts based on the social contract, natural rights, and checks and balances. Primarily, above all else, the Constitution created a republic, but despite this um, working of great ancient and more modern ideas, only 39 of the 55 delegates signed that constitution. This created two factions, the Federalists, the Pro-Constitution, and the Anti-Federalists. And then in 1789, ultimately the debate was settled with the creation of the Bill of Rights which with that now written as these are the rights that are granted by God to man, it is not granted by the government, that is a huge difference even today in the Constitution, I believe uh, the UK has a Constitution, their Constitution is granted to them by the government because it is the king 
or the queen that is given the authority by God. That is essentially what the word king means. It's a power endowed by a creator to a person and that is totalitarian. No, in this concept, this is a new concept, saying that, no, 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 these rights are given by God to man, and it is actually the government's job to defend those rights. And with those rights now codified and written down, the two factions, the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, would agree upon it, and the Constitution was ratified, making it the law of the land ever since. And that um, idea... That constitution informed by ideas from the church, ideas of the greatest thinkers of the century, uh, of the millennia, truly, um, that defended the Christian ideas into the very laws of nature. These Enlightenment thinkers determined that nature itself testifies to the effectiveness of the Christian doctrine. And then these thinkers came, and I, I put out a quote by Ben Franklin, um, that was um, essentially saying that I believe in one God and one creator. So despite very stark opposition to the notion, America was founded on Christian ideas informed by the greatest Christian thinkers, defenders, the very creators of the hard sciences, the Enlightenment thinkers who all believed in God. All of that compiles together to create a beautiful document that says, no, God has given us these rights— we owe it to ourselves to set up a constitution and a government that will defend those very rights. And that created the nation that is, was the greatest nation, and I would say still is the greatest nation, but we have some, some things to get back to. In a practical manner, the point of this episode is to say, listen, we fought for our nation. We fought for our, our rights and our freedoms, but our freedoms are granted by God, and we will get them in no other way than to go back and defend God, and to preach God, and to preach the good news, the, the very news that many of the thinkers of the Enlightenment era devoted their life to proving in a real, actual, factual, scientific manner that, no, 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 nature itself testifies to the glory of God, which we can obviously see in the Bible. And we will not get back to those amazing freedoms that we benefited from, that we fought and died over, until we get back to that nation, to that notion. I'm sorry, not nation. Um, we will return to the greatest nation that has ever existed when we think that, no, 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 we are not Americans. We are first Christians. If you believe in God, if you are a, a Christian, if you are born again, then you are first and foremost a ambassador to the kingdom of heaven. And it's a beautiful thing that we have this beautiful nation that grants us these freedoms. But we will no longer have that if we continue to think of ourselves as only Americans and not as Christians. Because it is fundamentally the notion that God is king and that Christianity is prime that we will reap the benefits. The benefits of America flows from that core tenet of reality that God is in control, that our lives belong to Jesus because we know from the Bible that God desires all good things for us and he orders the steps of those that diligently seek after him. And our steps need to be ordered because we need to diligently seek after our father, not our founding fathers, but our father God, and Jesus. And so, this is an important story 
the story of the American Revolution, the story of the birth of our nation, because it testifies to the idea that our beautiful nation comes from the the work and the um, belief in the primacy of Christianity. And if we want to save our nation, if we want to see America grow and blossom again, we need to not get back to the Constitution. We need to get back to what informed the Constitution in the first place, which is, of course, the Bible. So, folks, I hope you enjoyed that episode. I know I really enjoyed recording this one. I love American history. I consider myself a patriot, obviously. I think you guys can tell that I consider myself a patriot. But it's important to know that before patriot comes Christian. God, country, family, not country, God, family. And really, it should be God, family, country. In my opinion, that's the order of things. So, folks, I hope you learned something new. I hope you learned something real. Look for the Dialectical Thought segment that will be coming out very shortly. But before then, I will see you next week with some more Food for Thought. Mm-hmm.